kind of a switch, a shift because of the whole hippie thing. Welcome back to Round Guy the Podcast as we do part two of Tommy Bolin, Iowa's greatest guitar player. We've gone up to the patch of blue part. We're back on the phone with Tommy Bolin archivist Michael Drum and YouTube documentarian. Uh, we're also on the phone with Steve the Round Guy. Uh, take over, Steve. Michael Drum on the line with us. Uh, we're tickled to have him as our guest because we're talking about one of our own here in Iowa, Tommy Bolin, uh, who left us far too soon and uh, and yet left us with a legacy of uh, just historic music. And, and uh, Michael, we, we uh, are in the second part of this interview. And, and as I said, I'm learning more and more as are our listeners. Uh, let's take up where we left off, whereby you were kind of getting to where Tommy was in his teenage years, still v- devoting much of his music to jazz, but but on the verge of breaking out into a variety of different um, uh, guitar genres. Uh, pick up where you left off and, and talk about Tommy in the teenage years, how he got a little more involved, left home and traveled and uh, gave music uh, his life. Well, so as I was talking before, the gift he had and his ability to just hear and play anything and at this point become obvious. And so anybody who had a band of any value um, wanted to have Tommy in their band because he could just play a decisively good role in it. And so we get to... Um, he turns 15 in 1966, and he's in Patch Blue, and they're getting lots of gigs. And 66, going into early 67, there started to be a revolution happening across the United States that also did manifest in Sioux City, and that would have been you know, generically called the hippie era and part of what the hippie era had in it was you know smoking pot and taking lsd and that also found its way into sioux city there was um it was a particular store again forgive me for not remembering the name but it was kind of a counterculture um headquarters a rallying point. And so Tommy started to, you know, step into this kind of counterculture lifestyle. And because of his father's support of him and his mother's unconditional love, he had been completely convinced that music was going to be his thing. And as he then started playing in public, everybody, he was getting nothing but positive reinforcement he was that good and so as a 14 15 year old if all those ingredients are there what are you into doing you're into music that's what you want to do and so he never became a serious student but of course everybody went to school and had your peer group and did your thing but music was going to be his deal that was he, his only goal was, I'm going to do music. And so as the spring happens, 
whole rock and roll in the spring of 67, all of a sudden the, the whole English scene and other bands are coming along where there's a little bit more focus on the guitar, on loud music, on it being more in-your-face kind of music. And he winds up uh, kind of starting to play louder in Patch of Blue. And all of a sudden he's not manifesting as just the, the young kid team player anymore. He's starting to have a little bit more headstrongness about what he wants to do. And that became kind of um, controversial because the Larvics, it was their band. And they were the ones that had all the connections for the gigs. And so um, I believe it was that spring of 67 where they came over to the bowl and households and Johnny remembers this. And they went into Tommy's bedroom with Tommy and Johnny stayed out. And then they come walking out and they leave and Johnny goes, they just fired me for playing too loud. Um, and so um, then something really incredible happened. August of 1967 it was the United States release of Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix. And Tommy was like a fly to shit when that album came out. And really what Jimmy personified with the way he visually presented himself, it was kind of the outrageous way he made guitar a star. And it just blew Tommy's mind. And what it really spoke of was Jimmy showed everybody how to be free. You know, not wearing a suit, not just playing by the rules, but you could go outside of all that. And it was so exciting to him that he just immediately learned a number of songs from, from the album, including Purple Haze, which kind of became a signature, but, but only for about a year. And then after she left and came to Denver, then he never played it again. Nobody, I never heard, nobody ever heard him play it except the people from that one window of time. And so he then, there were a lot of talent shows going on at that time. And he wound up putting his first band together, which only lasted about a month and didn't really ever have a live gigging thing, but it was more for these talent shows. You know, a lot of talent shows, could you win a, win a prize and you know, get a little bit of momentum. Well, he put a group together that doesn't show up in any of the narratives about Tommy, called Harlem's Children. And it was Tommy and three African-American musicians from the Sioux City scene. And he famously had a pair of Carnaby Street madras pants and some shirts like that. And in the bands he had been in, forget it. You're not going to wear anything like that. you got to wear the suit. And everybody has to have matching suits. So Harlem's children did about by two or three of these shows, there's no record of any of it. And this is all from the old histories I did with Johnny, who knew all about it. But again, if you go back and Google Tommy's history, this is not even in there at all. But it was because of Hendrix. It was completely because of Hendrix that he then did that. So, so now at this point, 
everybody's starting to grow their hair. And Central High in Sioux City, the administration's just freaking out. It's the fall of 1967. And LSD's popping up, smoking pot's popping up, growing your hair's popping up. And Sioux City, as with many places, was very conservative. And the school administration's like, what the fuck are we going to do? Although I'm sure they weren't saying it that way. But they were like, how do we stop this? How do we nip this in the bud? Oh, my God. And so here's Tommy, fresh from having become Hendrickized <laughs> in August, goes to school in the fall, and they immediately pinpoint him as target. We're going to make an example of Tommy. So they had this dress code, which had a thing about how long your hair could be. Said, okay, you're suspended but you have to cut your hair to such and such a length for us to let you back in. And he was obviously not happy about this, but he did it. He cut it to exactly the length they said, and he goes back, and they go, that's not good enough. So again, the point wasn't so much about how long is your hair. I believe it was more about making a point that this whole counterculture thing was not going to be acceptable. And so at that point, they didn't let him back in. He continued to be suspended. And the musician Brad Miller had been in Patch of Blue previously. He had, he had left for Denver already. And Tommy at that point was like, well, what, the, what the hell am I going to do? You know, at this point in time, Sioux City became completely irrelevant and he was like and Brad communicated to Tommy hey I'm in Denver it's a pretty happening scene here in Denver and Denver you know always represented kind of the, the mecca for a lot of the you know Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa Wyoming North South Dakota if people wanted to go to a big city they would go to Denver and so his parents were like, we bless you to go to Denver. If you go ahead, if you have to go, go. You know we're here. You know we love you. Go ahead. So he heads to Denver. I believe it was a bus, caught a bus, and gets to Denver. And within 30 days of coming to Denver, he meets three people who would be in his world for the rest of his life. One was Jeff Cook, who became a primary lyricist for Tommy, and he had his own band at that point called Crosstown Bus. And he also, at 12 years old, was fanatically listening to blues albums. He meets him because their band is in downtown Denver rehearsing in a basement. Tommy's downtown and he, it's snowing out. He has his guitar. And he hears this music coming. He goes to the door. And he's just pounding on the door, pounding on the door. And they're like, what is that noise? And they finally, hey, can I come in and jam with you guys? You're like, who the hell are you? You know, he's like, looks like he's a kid. And he was so insistent and he was so nice that Jeff said, okay, come on in. And the band already had a guitar player, bass player, drummer, singer. And they 
Harry plugs in and he immediately plays Purple Haze. And everybody has a coma, goes into a coma immediately. What the fuck? And this was within two months of that song being plastered on every everywhere. I mean, it was it had become a phenomenon. And he was blowing everybody's mind completely. So the next day, this band that had a booking agent fired their guitar player and renamed themselves American Standard. And he, as soon as he met Jeff, he was in a band in Denver that had traction. At the very same time, Barry Fay, who became the most legendary concert promoter, one of the most legendary in United States history, for a number of reasons. He had gotten to Denver the year before, and he wanted, he found out about Chet Helms out in San Francisco, who had a production company called Family Dog Productions, and they were managing Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janis Joplin, and they were putting on shows at the Avalon Ballroom with all the cream of the crop of all those late 60s bands and all, as well as blues artists, legacy blues acts, that whole thing back in the late 60s where the counterculture music fans embraced all that stuff. They embraced blues, they embraced jazz, and Helms was booking all that stuff. So Barry, one thing led to another, and he pitched the idea that they would open a club in Denver called The Family Dog in partnership with Chet Helms, who already knew all these managers and booking agents. Barry didn't really know any of them. But Barry had done a little bit of concert promoting. He knew that's what he wanted to do. And so simultaneously with Tommy getting to Denver and meeting Jeff, all of a sudden, instantly, first time he jams with anybody, he's in the band. (laughs) Um, And just, again, everybody was just stunned. Um, so American Standard brought in front of Barry Fay because they had a booking issue and Barry immediately saw wow these guys are great because at 16 Tommy 16 and 3 months old they show up and jam Purple Haze. <laughs> it is like stunning, beyond stunning. So they immediately got booked into the family dog on the bill, opening act for a number of of some of these legacy San Francisco era type groups. And, and immediately Tommy had gone from Sioux City where he was being told to, you're fired because you're playing too loud. And within six months, He's in the middle of the very first ultra-hip music thing that happened in Denver. But the Denver police were completely freaked out, and they started harassing the club and the bands that played there like crazy. Because Denver was a larger version kind of of what Sioux City was like back then. Pretty conservative. Um, But... Part of what Chet Helms would help do would be to book some of these blues legends. Uh, he was kind of the conduit for the talent that would play at the Family Dog. 
And in doing this with Jeff Cook, he related that um, that I'm, I believe it was Big Brother played at the opening night, but then they played next spring or next uh, June as well. And um, and that Howlin' Wolf was put on the bill. And Howlin' Wolf, a lot of those blues people, they would get booked, Chuck Berry, but they wouldn't travel with the band because they wanted to make most of the money. Um, so, um, um, it's okay, I got something just happened in the house, it's okay. So, Jeff tells the story about um, that they're told to come down the family. You're going to be the backup band for Howlin' Wolf. And so they're there early in the afternoon hanging out. And in walks this imposing African-American man with a starched kind of white shirt on, janitor green pants, and the big chunk of keys hanging from the chain off of his belt. And they see this guy come in and they go, oh, is this the janitor? And then Holland Wolf walks up and goes, where's the band? Are you guys the band? And they get up and first, the way Jeff described is the first song, Holland's got this look on his face like, uh, huh? huh? Because Tommy looks like he's 15. And by the fifth song, Howlin' Wolf's jaw is on the ground. And that was the very first time that Tommy had backed up the blues legend. It wasn't the last. And, you know, it just stunned. Everybody was just, Howlin' Wolf was stunned. <laughs> the kid's 15, 16 years old. So, anyway, um, from February, Barry Fay had realized pretty quick that through booking acts at the Family Dog, which held maybe 800 people at the most, that he was now making contacts with all these bands' managers and booking agents. And he was like, wow, I should try booking some big concerts. And so he books Jimi Hendrix the headline on February 14th, 1968 at Regis College Fieldhouse, which holds about 6,000 people. And Barry was just beginning his career of being a big promoter. So he wanted to pull out all the stops and try to gain curry with all the artists and give them the best time they could. So Barry arranged for the family dog to be the location of a private after-show party for Jimmy, not open to the public, just where he could come, hang out, chill, do whatever he wanted, and jam. And who did they make sure was there to jam with Jimmy? Tommy. This is also not well known, but it does show up in a number of different... It did happen. And so they, and the reports are that Jimmy played bass while well, he would have then stood there being blown away by Tommy. 
And so that's how much of an impression Tommy had made. Because Barry Faye wanted to curry favor with Jimi Hendrix. Hey, I'll throw you a post-show party. And hey, I've got some musicians you can jam with. And that Tommy was that person. And what would that have done for Tommy's confidence? You know? But then a month later, not a month later, but come July, Family Dog closed, and they wound up doing some other shows there. There was a famous show that didn't happen, that was be- two months before that Jimi Hendrix thing. It was December 20th. Otis Redding was booked to play the Family Dog. He died in the plane crash 10 days earlier. And that's when sitting on the dock of the bay was just all over radio. It was his breakthrough hit. And they had booked him at the Family Dog. The opening act, American Standard, was Tommy. The show never happened. There's a poster. They made a poster. And you can find that online. It kind of disappeared for a while, but it does exist. It's online. Otis Redding, American Standard, Denver Family Dog Show. It's a really cool poster. That was part of what the Family Dog did. They tapped into all those great San Francisco poster artists and uh, a lot of amazing posters. So that was Tommy's pedigree right out of the box. And the other person who he met right away was Dave Brown, who had three brothers. He was one of three brothers, Dave, Rick, and Alan Brown. Dave was a great guitar player. And they had a band called Hannigan's Greenhouse. It had three-part brother harmonies right when the Bee Gees were first coming out. And the thing they'd always said about the Bee Gees is, oh, they had the greatest three-part brother harmonies. You can't have harmonies any better than if it's three brothers. They had quite a little buzz going on in Denver. And American Standard actually opened for Hannigan's Greenhouse. But Dave Brown immediately got that Tommy was from another planet. And he wound up becoming his guitar tech for the rest of his life. He gave up his own musical career, even though people were already going, wow, that Hannigan's Greenhouse is great. He just gave up his own career for Tommy. So, um, summer of 68 hit, and the family dog closed because they'd been harassed by the Denver police all the time. And Faye had kind of transitioned into, you know what, I can just book these larger concerts. They're one-off events. It'll be harder for the police to target them. And they just closed the family dog completely. And, and Tommy had gotten wind that Lonnie Mack, I don't know how this happened, I still haven't figured that out, but that Lonnie Mack needed backup band. He was going to be doing some gigs in Cincinnati area in the Midwest. And so Tommy at that point left Denver and went to Cincinnati and did these gigs with Lonnie Mack, but nothing long-term came of it. While he was there, he met John Ferris, who was this gifted uh, keyboard player and saxophone player. He was a real jazz bow, great musician, you know, way out kind of brilliant guy himself. And so he and Tommy then headed back to Denver 
and that's when they got back and one thing led to another and the group Zephyr formed which was then going to be Tommy's first band of substance that really made a lot of noise especially up in Boulder so that's kind of um, that's you know what happened as soon as he left Sioux City it's like should he have left Sioux City you know all that happened within a month he met Jeff Cook was instantly in a band that had a booking agent immediately doing gigs immediately getting plugged into this brand new ultra hip club the first of its kind ever in Colorado and meeting the person who would give up his own band to support Tommy as his guitar tech I mean it's just unbelievable and I'm kind of, I'm the person I put all that together and realized wow it was all in the first 30 days and again all three of those people wound up playing a significant role in Tommy's life up until the night he died Dave Brown was there Jeff was not in the band he wasn't touring with him but he was still writing lyrics for him a lot of his most evocative songs Jeff wrote the lyrics for, but Jeff always knew how to dial it into where it was, they were appropriate for Tommy. And Tommy would then, you know, look at the lyrics and maybe want to edit them a little bit or say this or say that or whatever. So even though Tommy wasn't writing all the lyrics, they wound up reflecting Tommy. It was almost as if he was. It was kind of the way Elton John and Bernie Taupin were, where Bernie just had a way of writing lyrics that were Elton sounded like they were Elton's. You know, a lot of people didn't really understand that Elton never wrote any lyrics. But Tommy, as it turns out, did become a lyricist and wound up becoming a very personal, evocative lyricist himself. Um, unlike Elton John, as it turns out, Tommy wound up being able to do everything. He went so far beyond being, quote-unquote, a guitar player. He became an incredible, prolific composer. And one of the things about Hendrix before he died was there were articles about how he was frustrated with coming up with new material. And a number of his breakout songs had been cover songs. Tommy had never had an issue with being able to write. He was like a water fountain. He, he just melodies just came out and he wrote hundreds of songs but then he had to develop himself as a singer and by the time he was doing private eyes his last album i interviewed dennis mckay at length co-produced the album with him he said it would take one two three takes for him to have the perfect vocal utterly on key utterly in pitch perfect but everything he did could do perfectly and he also became an incredible producer that he knew what he wanted to do so he had the whole package by the end amazing producer hey I don't mean to cut in here buddy but we're running up against time this has been uh, we're talking to michael bloom or michael drum who's uh, uh was a friend of tommy's and uh has done documentaries on him. This is part two. We're up to about 1968. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll have part three in just a minute.